We are uh, doing a series of passages in the Bible that have been miscited or misunderstood, either in the church or outside the church. So today we'll be in James chapter 2, 14 to 26. If you have your Bible, you want to turn there, James 2, 14 to 26. Let me go ahead and uh, lead us in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that all scripture, all of it, is inspired, it is inerrant, without error. It is profitable. And Father, we want to understand biblical texts in their context. Lord, we probably all have either heard or even participated in misunderstanding or misciting texts. And so, Father, over the next probably five months, we'll be looking at some of your word and some of these passages that are perhaps quoted a little bit too loosely or historically or contemporarily been misunderstood. Father, we don't want just intellectual knowledge but we want to be transformed. You tell us in James that we're not just to hear the word, but we are to do the word, live the word, be transformed by it. So that's what we ask. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, Sam, thanks for joining me on stage. What makes James 2, 14 to 26, either a misunderstood or sometimes misquoted passage? It's a good question. It's an important one. Some read the end of James 2, and they wrongly assume that we're saved by what we do. We're saved by works. That couldn't be farther from the truth. As we look at the big picture of Scripture, the Bible's clear. We're saved by grace through faith and what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. There's nothing we can do to earn a right relationship with God, to earn forgiveness. One of my favorite passages is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And that's followed up by Philippians 2.12, which says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice what the language says. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. Having believed in Christ, Having confessed, agreed with God that you and I are sinners, wrong action, attitude, thought, motive, inactivity, having agreed with God that we are sinners, we then accept Jesus, his death as a payment of our sin, his resurrection from the grave as evidence of life after the grave. We believe in him as Savior and Lord. And then Paul says, work out that salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, having believed in Christ, having received Christ, then we begin to live out our new faith empowered by God's Spirit. It's almost ludicrous to think that you, I, could somehow earn our way into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's laughable, really, to think that we could impress God with our good works. Maybe we could think of it this way. It'd be 
easier for Pastor Jared, who wears shorts in January, to impress Dave Mahler with his classy attire. Not happening. N- not even once. No. Or how about this? It's, it's laughable to think we could impress God with our good works. It would be easier for the Brian Niemeyer to impress a Marine with his haircut. Last I checked, his hair was longer than that. So. Not happening. Or how about this? This one's my personal favorite. It's laughable to think we could impress God with our good works. It would be easier for your New York Yankees to impress my Milwaukee Brewers with their skill on the baseball diamonds. I did notice, Jeff, normally you wear a, a Yankees lanyard with your name tag on Sunday. That seems to be missing today. It's football season. I see. Not after how your college team played yesterday. So He's an Alabama fan. That was not a diss at the Badgers, so I would never do that. So, Okay, last one. It's laughable to consider that we could impress God with our good works. It would be easier for you to impress Tiger Woods with your golf game. (laughs) Thanks, I think, Sam. Well, as I thought of James 2, 14 to 26, I thought of a comedian named Ken Davis. I don't know if you know Ken Davis. He's a Christ follower, and he's uh, quite clever. And when he was in college, he had a speech class. And he was told in that speech class that uh, what you need to do in order to get a good grade is you've got to convince the class and the professor of what you're teaching. You've got to move them in a powerful way. So what Ken Davis did was he decided to teach them about the law of the pendulum. And I don't know if you know anything about a pendulum. Maybe they'll put one up here for a moment. A pendulum goes back and forth. And the law of the pendulum is because of gravity and friction, every time it swings, it will go a little less, a little less, a little less until it comes to rest. It will never go to the point in which it was last released. Friction and gravity keeps it from doing so. So when he explained the law of the pendulum, the professor thought he was done, wasn't really impressed with the talk, and the professor was walking up on stage, and Ken said, no, sir, I'm not done. He said, sir, you might look above you. There is a beam, an I-beam, and from there, I have created a pendulum. It's got 250 pounds of weight on a parachute 500 test line. And what I want you to do, Prof, is I want you to stand back here against the wall. And then he brought it right up, I mean, right up to his Prof's nose. And he said, Prof, do you believe the law of the pendulum? And the Prof said, yes. And he let it go. And it made this horrible sound as it went whizzing across and then came back in this terrible sound. And it got to hear, and of course, the prof bailed out. And everyone laughed. And Ken Davis said, Did he believe in the law of the pendulum? And everyone cried out, No. Why? Because he had an intellectual belief but it didn't transfer into a lifestyle change. If he had truly believed 
in the law of the pendulum, if he had truly believed in gravity and friction, he would have known he was utterly safe. But with that weight coming back at him, he was not a believer at that moment. That's James's concern about our lives. And so he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, that faith is dead. Let me pick up and read from James 2. I want to read verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if everyone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, it's the Greek word chiton. It was an outer jacket. It was actually used not only as a coat, but the blanket at night. And you think, well, they're in Israel. It's not that cold. Well, you may not know this, but on Mount Hermon, it snows. In fact, last year, I kid you not, I had a snowball fight on Mount Hermon. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. That's the Old Testament Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You do well. You believe scripture. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar, Genesis 22? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What James is doing is this. He is addressing a scenario in his life, perhaps prophetically, he's seeing a scenario in our life. Maybe he's thinking of a Billy Graham crusade. And Billy Graham, when he would be preaching, he would call for a response and many would flood down the aisles and many truly came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. But there were always a few that would walk the aisle, perhaps out of peer pressure, not really sure about this faith thing. Maybe they'd sign their name and a date in a Bible. Maybe they'd raise their hands in a revival meeting. But there really isn't transformation in their life. There's just kind of a, an intellectual assent, a few words that are given, and, and there's no transformation or change, and, and it's just intellectual. And James thinks that a church could be filled with individuals who truly believe in Christ, but it also could have a few individuals or maybe many individuals who have given intellectual assent. They know the sermons. Maybe they've taught the lessons. Maybe they have a Bible that is highlighted and, and underlined and well used, but yet it contains an individual who knows a lot about God, knows a lot about Scripture, but has not given their life 
to Jesus Christ. He's worried about that. And he asks in verse 14, can that kind of faith actually save? Now this particular text has played a disproportionate place in the scholarship of the Protestant church. Many of you know of Dr. Martin Luther. Dr. Martin Luther was a church insider. He was a monk, a priest, a professor of sacred theology at the University of Wattenberg. And on October 31st, 1517, it actually wasn't the first time he did it, it was the second he nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. He wanted a conversation among scholars about what's going on in the church. And among those 95 theses were about 40 different ways he thought the church should reform. And you remember that was kind of the tip of the iceberg. And from that point, we can readily identify Protestant, which is the word protest, and Catholic, which is the word universal. But he's just the tipping point. The truth of the matter is that for 300 years at least, we have had a number of individuals, church insiders, saying something needs to happen. The church is sick. And he was the tipping point that led to the split. Well, as part of the Protestant Reformation, Dr. Luther believed that the common individual ought to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And so while he was hiding at the castle of Wartburg, hiding for his life, he began to translate the Bible into German. And the first German translation was in 1523, the New Testament. And in the preface to the New Testament, not the preface to the book of James, the preface to the New Testament, he is offended by this book. He has misunderstood this book. He thinks his book is getting a little close to work salvation. And so he calls James a straw epistle. That's what Dr. Luther writes. Why? Well, you know that Dr. Luther believes very much in sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus in Christ alone. That salvation is by faith in Christ who extends grace, what we cannot earn. He pays the penalty of our sin. He dies, he rises again. And so Dr. Luther is offended by anything he thinks suggests some kind of work salvation. And he kind of thinks he sees this in chapter two, verse 17. So he calls James a straw epistle. A couple of things I want us to know. Luther obviously believed it was part of the canon. It was canonical. It was scripture. How do we know that? Well, he included James in every one of his later editions. Second, if you know anything about Dr. Luther, when he is offended, he is loud. When he apologizes, he's quiet. And so in the second edition, he takes out the phrase straw epistle. He has come to understand his mistake. But Dr. Luther is still kind of stubborn. So if you know anything about it, he reordered the New Testament and threw James at the very back. Just so we knew that it was a little less 
Scripture than the rest. What would Paul say about that? He would say in 2 Timothy 1, all Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is for the person of God. It is for correction, reproof, training, and righteousness that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped with every good work that we need all 39 books, all 27 books, Old and New Testament, all of it is scripture that we need. There is no straw epistle. Do you know what the problem was? This great scholar, and Dr. Luther was a great scholar. He misunderstood. He thought James initially was talking about justification, how we come to Christ. And the text is about sanctification. Having come to Christ, how do we work out that salvation with fear and trembling? If you make that mistake, you would be with Dr. Luther. If this text is about justification, how we come to Christ, it would be heresy. Because we can add nothing to our salvation. Nothing. But it's about sanctification, having been saved, how do we work out that salvation with fear and trembling? So James says, how do you work it out? Well, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he encourages us to care for the least of these. That's his illustration. He gives us a very soft illustration in verses 14 to 18. It's not foolproof. But he says, one evidence that you and I belong to the Lord is we care for the least of these. Maybe we give to the benevolent offering. Maybe we volunteer at Hagar House. Or we volunteer at the Gospel Transformation Living Center. Or we volunteer at the Bridge Street Mission or uh, Hope Life Center. Or we care for some orphans and some homeless children and, and we bring them into our house as foster children or we adopt them or we care for someone who is bereaving or we care for someone at the later stage of their life and, and we pour ourselves into individuals who cannot thank us back. That's the example he gives in verses 14 to 18. I want to illustrate this with an account of Betty Ann and my youngest. That would be Hannah. Now, this is our little secret. Hannah doesn't know I'm going to talk about her. We're going to keep it that way. You see, growing up, if I was going to talk about the kids, we would negotiate the night before. It would cost me ice cream. It would cost me a $5 bill. If they really thought I liked the illustration, it would cost them a $10 bill. Her price has gone up. She's old. We're not telling her I used her as an illustration. But if you know my daughter, Hannah... You know that she's a professional Christian counselor, and she works with the underprivileged in Minneapolis. It doesn't pay well, but it's her way to serve the Lord. Also, one of the things about Hannah, I don't like this, by the way, and you might not like it. We probably don't like it for different reasons. I don't like it because I'm her dad. But Hannah always drives around with nutritional snacks. She's like 5'1 or 5'2 and 110 pounds. I'm not really excited about this. She gets to a red light. She sees a homeless person. She rolls down her window and she feeds them. And she does this on a regular basis. What is she doing? She's trying to live out her faith. She's trying to obey James 2, 14 to 17 that says, one, there's a lot of evidences, 
But one possible evidence of belonging to the Lord is to care for, to reach out to the least of these. Well, that's a gentle illustration. Now he gets a little bit tough in verses 18 and 19. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. It's a remarkable statement. What he's telling us is that the demons are orthodox. They know Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In fact, they know theology better than any of us in this room. They've lived theology. They've heard the messages. They've seen the miracles. They know God. They were with God. They were angels that are now fallen. And with their theology, they know the the lake of fire is true. They know that they are utterly damned, that a day is coming when their freedom will be taken from them and they will be locked for eternity, separated from God. They shudder. And I think about that. These demonic forces think so much about God that they shudder. And how often am I laissez-faire about God? How often is he kind of an asterisk in my life, an afterthought? Maybe I can make room for him this week or, or maybe I can do something for him next week or maybe he kind of fits in my schedule sometime and I'm laissez-faire about God and the demonic that really know God and are in rebellion to God. They are not laissez-faire. Ought not, if they shudder, ought not I be filled with exuberant praise and worship for who this God is? Because unlike them, I'm redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Laissez-faire should not be part of my life. He's Lord, and I ought to live that way. What James wants to know is this. If you, I, we have claimed Christ, is there evidence Has Christ made a difference in our life? Has the empowerment of the Spirit within us transformed us, changed us? Paul says, do we have the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He gives us nine characteristics. We don't have all nine of them. Not mastered. We don't have any of them mastered. But is there transformation? Is there growth? Is there change in our life? Can we see from when we accepted Christ to now that there is change, perseverance within us? James isn't the only one concerned. Jesus is concerned. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Not I knew you and you fell away. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen to the progression. James says, if you know Christ, there will be good works evidencing it. 
And then Jesus ups the ante and says, not just good works, good works done for God in an act of worship. Because there'll be some in the church that'll do good works. They'll even cast out demons. But if they're not doing it as an act of worship empowered by God's spirit, it doesn't count. Not in the economy of God. James wants us to know, really know, to do some self-examination in our lives to make sure that, that we have believed in Christ and that there's evidence in our lives. So James then gives us two examples. I don't know about you, but there's passages of Scripture that are harder than some than others for me. All of it's inspired. All of it is inerrant. All of it is good. But that doesn't mean I equally like all of it. There's some passages that are especially difficult. If you're a parent, a grandparent, a lover of children, Genesis 22 is hard. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Isaac, and take him to the region beyond the Mount of Moriah and there sacrifice him on an altar in a place that I will show you. Now at this point in Genesis 22, Abraham has been walking with the Lord for probably about 40 years. Genesis 15, 6 is very clear. Salvation is because he believed. Nobody in all of history has been saved by action of oneself. They looked forward to the Redeemer. We look back on the Redeemer. Nobody has been saved without faith in the Redeemer who we know to be Jesus. And so in Genesis 15, 6, he believes in the coming Redeemer. The Redeemer he doesn't know much about, but he knows enough. And he believes, and he's believed for 40 years. And then God comes to him and says, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, Isaac, and take him to the region of Moriah, to the altar, to the place that I will tell you, and there sacrifice your son. It's a 50-mile walk. He's 120 years old. His son is 18, 19, 20 years old. Can you imagine a three-day walk every step, knowing that you are going to sacrifice your son? This text is almost unconscionable, except we know. We have scripture. We know God hates, he abhors anyone who would ever think of sacrificing a son, a child. He hates the false god of Moloch, where you would put a child on outstretched arms with a fire underneath and heat up the stone until the child fell in and died. He hates that. We know it. But we have the benefit of Scripture. Abraham does not. And so for 50 miles, every step for three days, he trudges. He's waited all of his life. He and Sarai for a child. He finally gets the child of promise. And now God says, sacrifice him. And Hebrews 11 tells us he really believes he's going to sacrifice this child. And then God will resurrect him. We know better. And the son allows himself to be tied up. He must allow it. His dad's 120. And he raises the knife and he's going to thrust it and an angel stops him. And God provides another sacrifice. And this is James' point. Faith, if it isn't demonstrated by life change and works, is dead. And so Abraham demonstrated his faith by his willingness to obey God, even in the difficult commands of Scripture. 
What are the difficult commands for you? What are they difficult for you? For me, they're different for all of us. But we demonstrate our faith. We validate our faith by obeying not just the easy stuff, but the hard stuff. We have Abraham and then we have Rahab. These two couldn't be more unalike if the Bible tried, right? Rahab is a Canaanite. This is part of the conquest. Her people are standing against God's people, yet somehow she has come to realize that Yahweh, this God, has the Redeemer, the one true Redeemer, and she believes in this Redeemer, and she turns her back on her own people and towards God. They couldn't be more unlike. Abraham's called a friend of God. She's an immoral woman. Abraham is part of the covenant community. She's part of the community that is opposed to God. He's been brought up on faith. She's been brought up on idolatry. Their roads to the Redeemer are different. Isn't that true for all of us? Our paths to the Redeemer are utterly different in this room. And maybe some have not even gotten to the Redeemer. Maybe you're still wondering about this Redeemer. And today is the day you will believe in Jesus as the forgiver of your sin, the lover of your soul. Our paths are different. Some came to Christ like me at age four because I was given that benefit of that kind of family. Some have come to Christ really towards the end of your life and praise the Lord, God reached out and by faith you believed in Jesus. We've come from different paths, but it must end in the same path. It must end with Jesus Christ. And if we believe in Christ, then there will be evidence of it. The passage is not about justification. Justification is how we come to Christ. That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess, agree with God, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's justification. This passage is about sanctification. Having believed in Christ, then I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And so in your bulletin, I've asked a few questions. They're ones for you, me, we to ponder. Questions like this. Has there been a difference in our lives from the day that we walked the aisle, raised the hand, wrote the, the date in a book, or maybe just slowly came to faith and we can't even mark the date? Has there been transformation in our lives? Has there been fruit? Has there been change? What if you and I were arrested? Arrested because we're Christians. Is there evidence in our life to convict us? And what would that evidence look like? Do we have a prayer life talking to God that is growing and vibrant? Do we have a devotion life learning the scriptures that is growing where we just love this God and we get to know him? Is there a place for serving outside the church and in the church? God commands both. We're giving the first fruits of our income to his bride, the church. Are we caring for the least of these? What do we think about with this God? Are we laissez-faire? Are we sold out, committed, on fire, red hot, white hot, cinder, growing in Christ? Is there evidence 
of our walk with the Lord. That's what the text is about. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for these texts that sometimes, in this case, historically has been misunderstood, misquoted. And yet, Lord, we don't want to miss what you have for us. We want to know the context. We want to know the word, but not just so that we understand it, but that we live it for our betterment and your great glory. Help us to live your word in the name of Christ. Amen.